period. We struggle, Father, when we are tested. Though we know that the tests of our faith are good for us and are meant for good by you. Help us in testing. Even when we don't understand to trust and look to you in faith like Abraham. In Christ we pray. Amen. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. The book of Genesis records five significant encounters between Abraham and God, and in the fifth one, the background passage to our text this morning, Genesis 22, which you might want to have a finger there as well as in Hebrews 11. In Genesis 22, we find God coming to Abraham with a most difficult command or test. Take your son, God told him, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Verse 2, Genesis 22. This was, first of all, I think, a test of Abraham's devotion to God. Devotion is at the very heart of God's law. You know this verse, even if you don't know the reference, you know it well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. The proof of love, real godly love, is always found in willingness to sacrifice. But God tested Abraham not merely by asking for a sacrifice, not merely by asking for a great and costly sacrifice. God asked the sacrifice Abraham, rather, to sacrifice the thing that he held most dear. His covenant heir, his son, Isaac. The test of our devotion to God always involves this. That we love not so much God's gifts as great and as wonderful as they are, including our children who are gifts. 
The test of our devotion to God is that we love not first and primarily God's gifts, but that we love Him, the giver Himself. That we love Him above all else. The question is always, and it's a daily question in our growth, are we willing to put God first? Always, in everything. Are we willing to make God, in effect, everything? God says to us, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Proverbs 23, verse 25. He doesn't just ask, he commands us to love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. Not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Luke 10, verse 27 and elsewhere. Just as he has told us, as he has loved us first, he wants us to love him back, knowing that loving him first and loving him back, there is nothing better for us. And there is nothing less than that which he deserves. Every follower of Jesus Christ can expect to have his or her devotion tested regularly in small ways and in great ways. We will be challenged to sacrifice or to subordinate our careers, our desires to Him, to His will. Maybe there is a relationship, a friendship, uh, some other relationship that is exceptionally dear to you. Is your devotion to Jesus Christ, to God Himself, higher than that? If it isn't, He may require of you to surrender that relationship. He may require of you that He simply take it from you. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's some sort of self-image. Maybe it's lifestyle that you enjoy. It can be practically anything. God always knows what tempts each and every one of us supremely that we might make him second or third or fourth or 23rd or 50th. And he tests our faith in terms of our willingness to sacrifice, often sacrifice that thing for him. With the rich young ruler, are you prepared to give up your riches? Not the same test for everybody. We don't have all the same exact desires, etc. But by the tests that he brings to us, to each and every one of us, his aim is always to deliver us from the idolatries to which our hearts individually are so prone. We are each given to certain kinds of idolatries more than others, and he invariably tests us in regard to these things.
idolatries which, if not checked, would literally absorb us and destroy us. So he tests us in order to protect us. He tests us because he loves us so much. Even the good things that he has given to us, even the very best things like Isaac, the child of promise, he requires that we place them back in his hand where they have always been and always should be. Always holding everything that we have and every one, if you will, that we have as a trust from him as the giver, the possessor of all things. It isn't as though we possess these things independently or these people. He possesses them all. When we think his gifts are ours to do with as we please. Then we make his gifts, his good gifts, more important than him. We are but the stewards of all that we have, of all the gifts that we have received in, in, in things and in people. Even our children are not fundamentally ours. They are his and our children can only be truly enjoyed when we are willing to give them up to him when he calls upon us. To take them perhaps away from us, to take them somewhere we'd rather they not go. He's not my child, but I'd rather Carter and Leah don't go. <laughs> but that's not God's will, apparently. So I don't get my will in this case. I don't like this test. <laughs> Look again at verse 17. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? Abraham was the father of Ishmael by Hagar already at this point. And he would be the father of other sons by a woman named Keturah in the future. But Isaac was the one son of the covenant. The one and only son that he had with Sarah. So in terms of God's plan for the nation, Isaac was the only son. And so we see how difficult what God asked of Abraham was. Sacrifice Isaac? That would seem to pit God's promise against God's command. If God is able, or rather if God were going to be able to be faithful to his promises already made to Abraham then Isaac must live. He cannot fulfill the promises he's already made to Abraham if Isaac does not live. But if God's command in his test to Abraham was to be obeyed, then Isaac must die. This had to seem terribly inconsistent to Abraham. So internally contradictory. 
Now, I dare say none of us has ever been, a, a, been given a command by God like this. If you have been, I want to hear from you afterward. Or if you think you have been. Abraham was, after all, fulfilling a unique role in history. But there's application for us, nevertheless. God may call upon us to obey him in ways that seem to us spiritually counterproductive to ourselves or to our projects or to our ministries. We can be serving God faithfully in ministry alongside of others and the Lord takes us away from them and from that and puts us in another place which seems to us to be so unfruitful by comparison. God is testing us and teaching us to depend on Him only and to depend on Him completely. But we will often simply see what we perceive as the loss of some ministry or some opportunity or some relationship and its fruitfulness or its imagined fruitfulness which we have delighted in or we have looked forward to and the whole thing makes no sense to us. And yet like Abraham, we must summon the spiritual strength to trust God and obey Him obey his word in changed circumstances because apparently the short game that we thought was what God wanted is not his long game for us. Now, as I said, you want to be in Genesis 22 as well. Genesis 22 at verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. We talked about whether there's humor in the Bible. They're walking together. My father, here I am. Really? Was that hard? Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering, Isaac asked. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him, told Abraham. And Abraham built the altar and there, there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. How does faith overcome the natural objections to obeying such a command? How does faith pass such a test? Many people have read 
Genesis 22, and recoiled from the God who commanded this of Abraham. How could a good God ask a father to kill his son? Many have rejected the Bible altogether because of the supposedly twisted use of divine authority evident here in Genesis 22. Oh yes, the story goes on and it changes a bit, but nevertheless, putting him there, putting Abraham to the point where Abraham figures, that's what I've got to do, and he's ready to do it. He's doing it. How does a good God require such a thing? Moralists have rejected God over this. Existentialists have rejected Abraham, finding that Abraham's faith in God, if it's of this nature, is impossible to embrace. The classic example, I suppose, whether you're familiar with it or not, is Soren Kierkegaard, whose book, Fear and Trembling, I was made to wrestle with in actually multiple philosophy classes in college. Kierkegaard explicitly at one point wonders how Abraham could possibly be sure that it was really God who spoke to him and told him to do this. How could a father really do what Abraham went ahead and set out to do? If you and I had allegedly heard from God an instruction to take the life of our child who had acted in no way such to deserve such a thing, we all deserve it. Okay, forget that for the moment. If we allegedly heard, we thought, a message from the Lord seeming so contradictory to God's law, thou shalt not murder, would we not be justified in questioning the command? Indeed. Would we not be faulted if we failed to question this command? Would not such questioning be indicative of our faithfulness to God's word? Okay, I'm done. Let's go home. We're done. Let's... <laughs> this is not easy. Oh, we understand it's not easy for Abraham to do this, but, but the whole concept here is not easy. So what's different about Abraham's circumstances that he just goes and does this? Or that's his intention, fully. Well, he received a very direct communication from God that he knew was in fact God commanding him. There was no allegedly hearing from God in Abraham's case. It was not just a feeling he had. It was not just a sense of that he sensed. What God told Abraham to do with Isaac was not the sort of thing that one would feel one ought to do. That's important here as well. In so many circumstances today or throughout history, when people have 
said or people have thought that they were hearing something direct from, the, from God to them, what they were supposedly hearing, what they were supposedly sensing from God was and is almost invariably something they want to do, something that seems good to do. This is not at all the case with Abraham. And God's instructions to Abraham were very detailed. That's obvious. And God had already told Abraham to leave his home and his family. He'd already promised Abraham a son in his old age. And Abraham had seen those things take place miraculously. He'd seen that work out beyond anything that Abraham could imagine. So, hearing from God now, even in a terrible test, Abraham simply could not get away from the reality that God was really communicating with him as God had multiple times in his life up to this point and Abraham had experienced things as a result consistent with what God had told him. So, the lesson. Faith obeys God even when we don't know why God is working the way that he is working. But, but I, I don't want to go there. I don't want Carter to go there. I, I, faith obeys God even when I don't know why God is working the way he is working. That much is clear. Why would the Lord want Abraham to sacrifice his son when it was the Lord who gave Isaac to Abraham. All of the future promises to the nation of Israel are wrapped up in Isaac. When we walk with God, the tests of faith are often difficult. Indeed, the tests of faith walking with God are often more difficult than not to walk with God at all. In this life. But the rewards of faith are tremendously wonderful. For every single believer at some time or another, often multiple times, there comes something for which you will have no explanation. The hardest battle for many Christians is accepting what we do not understand Trusting in God's love and knowing, knowing that God will do as he has promised that which is our best, for our best. But there are times when trusting in that is very difficult. But what of others who don't even have Abraham's faith, even remotely? I've talked to lots of people Perhaps you have as well people who are disturbed and they question God's testing of Abraham's faith. They question God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. They question the flood in Genesis. They question God's command to annihilate the Canaanites. They question the eternal bodily punishment of sinners in hell. 
Such people have thought from their perspective that doing such things at the command of God, this is utterly unacceptable. All of those, and there are others. How can a good God do or command such terrible wrongs, so many people think? Humanists, from their perspective, in their worldview, I suggest are never going to find acceptable answers to their questions of this type. We can give answers, but they, from their perspective, are never going to find acceptable answers to their questions. Humanism has, unfortunately, impacted all of us Many of us have not resisted its claim that what is best for the greatest number of human beings is ultimately the yardstick of all that is good. We, we haven't rejected it. We, we are enamored of this idea often. What is best for the greatest number of human beings is ultimately the yardstick of all good. God, thank God, is not a humanist. He's a theist. He's a Godist. God does not think that the greatest good for man is the greatest good. God thinks that the glory of his name is paramount. God thinks that the manifestation of his justice and his holiness and his love is worth more than all the stars in the sky, all the possessions that we have, all the galaxies in the entire universe. Humanism will never be satisfied with the command that God gives to Abraham. But God does not intend to satisfy humanists he doesn't even intend to satisfy his own children to whatever degree we have adopted humanism. Meaning, man is the most important thing. God intends to drive this man-centered, me-centered, self-centered thinking right out of us. God does not intend to satisfy our questions when we come at him to judge him. God simply will not accept the position of being on the witness stand if we presume to sit in the judge's bench. It is only on our knees that we are to approach our true God and only when we approach him on our knees will we receive and will we be able to accept his answers his will as satisfactory as satisfactory even in the case of Abraham who was himself no longer a humanist he had learned long before Genesis 22 to kneel humbly before God and to put his trust wholeheartedly in God. And observe this. 
The same faith that receives and relies on God's word in God's promises is obligated to receive and obey God's word in God's commands whether we like them or not. It's the same God. It's the same word. Let me remind you, this is what Job told his wife. Remember when his wife urged him to complain to God about what God had allowed to happen to him, Job said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job 2, verse 10. Faith accepts both promise and precept, commands and comforts. Christ as Lord as well as Christ as Savior. God as holy as well as God as loving. Faith understands that you cannot have the one without the other. You don't get just the one side, which is where so many people want to be and think that's all God is. Faith knows that the path of safety and blessing is also the path of obedience. And faith doesn't pick and choose. Faith fears God and loves Him in it all. Many object, as we've said, in the case of Abraham's test, the promise and the command seem to stand in stark op opposition. God's command, sacrifice Isaac, can only be obeyed by undermining God's promise through Isaac Descendants and blessing will come to all mankind. But the faith that obeys God's command leaves the means of the promises fulfillment to God. If God is commanding something, the assumption that we always must make is he knows what he's doing even when we question it. He will be able to work all things, even this, for good. And right there is one of the striking differences between the person who believes in God and the person who really just believes in self. Those who trust in God do not ultimately find their solace, their comfort in always being able to solve the puzzle by adding up their own mental arithmetic. The Christian finds peace when he or she knows what God has revealed and commanded. Even without understanding all of it, we accept it as true because it comes from Him. 
In other words, to state it much more simply, but understandably, we believe that God knows better than we do. He has a lot better information, and he has infinite data compared to our very, very, very slim sample size of data. God also has an infinitely higher capacity for knowing and for processing and for ordering the information, and he does all of it perfectly without sin. Faithful believers know (laughs) that sin has thoroughly infected the circuit boards of our mental computers. True Christians are glad to trust what God has said and what God has caused to be written, for we know that his word is infinitely better and an infinitely surer guide than our own fallen power even of reason. God does not violate truth or reason which are rooted in the very character of his being, he being the one who established such things. He never violates them. His grasp of them is way beyond our poor ability to grasp them. Look at verse 19 again. Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, for which he also received Isaac back as a type. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take Isaac, the son that he loves, the son who will continue in the line, the line of promise, to the land of Moriah and to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering happens when an animal is killed and its blood is drained and its carcass is burned. Any father told to do this to his son would be tested beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And yet this is how Abraham was tested. God's instructions again seem to run directly contradictory to his promise. But nevertheless, Abraham proceeded as God commanded And let's be honest, at the point where I stopped reading in the text of Genesis 22, any outsider would view Abraham's actions at this point as the actions of a deranged maniac. Not the faithful obedience of a man to God. And plenty of wicked people will commit vile acts and claim that they did so obeying God. The difference between Abraham and them is that Abraham had unflinching trust and unhesitating obedience to God, resting on a foundation of solid, sound theology and solid experience with God over and over and over again before we ever got here. Abraham knew that God was completely good and that he never commands anything which is evil. He knew that God was completely wise and God has a plan. He knew that God was completely just and God would never do anything unfairly to Isaac. And he knew that God was completely powerful and God would keep his promises. 
So even in the midst of apparent contradiction, Abraham could trust and obey. Not because he knew exactly what was going on, but because he knew the one who did know exactly what's going on. And when he demonstrated his faith through this radical test, then, as you know, God provided a ram for Abraham to offer in place of sacrificing Isaac. And all of this was a type. Verse 19, the word there literally is a parable. All of this was a parable. Abraham offering his only son pictured obviously, well, maybe not quite so obviously back then, but the promise was there, pictured God offering his only son who actually did die for our sin. Isaac being received back from the verge of death signified God's unfailing provision at our point of greatest and most desperate need. And in a sense, Isaac died. No, Isaac didn't die literally. But in a sense, he died as the second half of verse 19, Hebrews 11 points out. He didn't die physically, but he did die in a figurative sense. He was taken right up to the point of death and then brought back to life. So in a sense, we can say that Isaac died and was resurrected. He acted that out, anticipating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Abraham passed the test because he was committed to God's promises. He showed faith in God by his willingness to obey God's command and to sacrifice even his son. He trusted God to deliver Isaac, and he may even have perceived that doing so, trusting God under these circumstances, would be the greatest display of God's glory. That's the story of the gospel. God is determined to save sinners and he has done so in a way that brings him the greatest glory possible. That explains why God who loved his son to an even greater degree than Abraham loved Isaac sent his son to die for us. God's word is true and his promises always come to pass even when we can't envision how he will do what he has promised. Nevertheless, we are called to obey him and follow him by faith. Faith obeys even without answers, but faith gains understanding through God's word. Abraham passed the test before him because of what he already knew from God. He knew that God was able to raise the dead. We're told that directly there in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. Abraham's faith was not, therefore, some autonomous, unbelieving reason, but faithful reasoning from what God had already revealed. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he believed God could bring him back from the dead. Well, that statement in Hebrews 11:19 isn't found in Genesis 22. But I suggest it was proved there. Genesis 22 and verse 5 tells us that when Abraham arrived at the appointed place, he told his servants, stay here with the donkey 
and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. We will come back. Where did Abraham get the idea that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the grave and they would come back? Surely Abraham knew that the fulfillment of God's promise of many descendants through Isaac required that Isaac be alive. If Isaac had to be alive, and yet he also had to be sacrificed, then God would have to raise him from the dead. Such logic makes sense, but there's something even more in the text. Remember the circumstances of, Ab- of Isaac's conception and Isaac's birth when Sarah was far beyond childbearing age and her womb was barren or dead. Remember what God had promised and predicted and produced by his power. All of this made clear to Abraham, abundantly clear to Abraham, that God has power over life. And if God has power over life, he has power over death. That was the ultimate answer to Abraham's problem, as it is to all of our problems. With the knowledge of God's power to take and give life, Abraham was able to obey His understanding came from faithful reflection on what God had earlier revealed about himself. Abraham, of course, didn't have a Bible, none of which had been written yet with the possible exception of the book of Job, which if it had been written by this time, it's highly unlikely that Abraham had read it. But even without Scripture, Abraham had a lot of experience with God to go by. We, on the other hand, do have the completed scriptures, and our faith can find power to obey God by learning and understanding God's Word through the study of God's Word, the consistent, careful, constant study and taking in of God's Word. We are so advantaged over Abraham. So if his faith can be strong, surely ours can by the grace of God as well. Nothing about Abraham's faith was easy. It was not easy for him to obey God in spite of what he knew. I suppose that before they got to that site where he was to sacrifice his son according to God's command, Abraham had probably died a thousand deaths on that three-day march. But he was able to obey God as you and I can as well. Genesis 22, verses 11 to 14, tell us that when Abraham was about to kill Isaac, the angel of the Lord said, Stop! And the angel of the Lord now said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham saw the ram caught in the thicket that God had provided, and he offered it in the place of Isaac. Hebrews 11, verse 19, indicates that Abraham knew 
that God could raise some from the dead, and indeed Abraham received his son back from the dead as a type or as a parable. Isaac did not actually die to have to be resurrected, but God spared his life honoring Abraham's faith, and we understand in this with Isaac there is a picture of another sacrifice that would sufficiently deal with human sin. The sacrifice to come, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Isaac even asked his father, where is the Lamb for the burnt offering? That, friends, is the question of the entire Old Testament. Many years after Abraham and Isaac in the Israelite priesthood, lamb after lamb after lamb was put to death day after day after day in the temple, and yet there was not anything ultimately accomplished by it because they were just mere animals. They pictured, but they were just mere animals, had no real ability to take away sin. Where is the true lamb? Finally, the last prophet of the old era, John the Baptist, sees Jesus walking along the Jordan, and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1, verse 29. The very one pointed to by that ram that Abraham had caught in that thicket, had found caught in that thicket. And just as Isaac carried the wood for the offering on his back, Genesis 22 and verse 6, Jesus carried the cross to the place of sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac's journey through the valley of the shadow of death, if you will, took three days. Genesis 22 verse 4. Jesus laid in that tomb for three days as Isaac prefigured it, and then Jesus rose through the power of God. People are put off by God requiring a father like Abraham to sacrifice a son. What do they think of a father who does that voluntarily of his own son? That too repulses many today, even many modern theologians who say that that is a sign that the biblical God is an awful God. Those who would reject God over this are only making it clear that they have denied the essential reality of our salvation. That we are sinners before the hands of a holy God. And only by bowing to God and confessing our guilt and our sin and our need for a lamb to die for us can we ever hope to make sense of Abraham and Isaac and to make sense of God's son, his only son, on a cross at his direction. Whenever God tests our faith, whenever God imposes his sovereign rights on us, we remember, we must remember that he is the God who has purchased for us free salvation, full forgiveness, and costly redemption. At the price of his own son's life, and we can rejoice. 
Peter Lewis wrote, The faith of Abraham may inspire us, but it is the faith of Jesus that saves us. The son who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There is no atonement at Moriah, but on Golgotha, there is a once for all and perfect sacrifice for sin. It was what was done there on Golgotha that saves Abraham and Isaac and you and me. It saves all those who turn in faith to this Father through His Son. And it saves all those who are eager to receive what this Father has promised and all those who are willing we don't do it perfectly far from it, but are willing and desire to obey his word because we know it comes to us in his love, which we can trust through his grace. Let's pray. Lord, you are so infinitely beyond us. We don't begin to understand you in any kind of full sense. But we have been given enough to know that you are God and you are trustworthy and you love us and you do only that which is good for those who love you. Many times that which is good may stretch us beyond this life. Often enough, it's within this life. Help us in our weakness as we struggle in our circumstances to love and obey you back. For many of these things are hard for us, and you knew they would be hard for us, but you bring them upon us to grow us, to increase our love for you, to increase our dependence on you, which is only the very best thing for us. We thank you for all of this. Perhaps we, each one of us, Lord, need to take a little time today to think of the specific difficulties of test and thank you for those ourselves. Thank you for Abraham and Isaac and all the more for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Rise for the benediction. May these things be real to you beyond even your own understanding. And may you trust in this wonderful God and his salvation. And ladies, have a great time. Depart in his peace. Amen. <laughs>